Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the Editor-in-Chief. Today I'll be conducting an interview with Peter Gray about his book, Free to Learn, Why Unleashing the Instinct to Play Will Make Our Children Happier, More Self-Reliant, and Better Students for Life. I read the book. I think it's very interesting. Some of you know, if you listen to this podcast at all, that I have young children. I uh, quite heartily agree with most everything um, Peter has to say, and I think he described my childhood in the book, as I told him in the pre-interview. So let me just get right to the point. Peter, what is the big idea in Free to Learn? Yeah, um, well, I, uh, I first of all, let me say I'm an evolutionary psychologist. I, I look at human behavior from the perspective, from a Darwinian perspective. Um, I'm interested in human nature. And uh, I'm particularly interested in the nature of human children. So the big idea in this book is that children come into the world biologically prepared to take charge of their own education. You know, another way to look at this is, is we are the cultural animal. We're the animal that survives by passing culture along from generation to generation. We can't survive unless the young of our species learn about the skills and ideas, the values, and and so on of the previous generation and build upon all of those. That's our specialty as as an animal. That's what we do. And that, by definition, is education. So we are the educative animal. We're the animal that is educable. (laughs) And how, in the course of the long history of human beings, did this process of education work? My thesis in the book, the primary big idea, is that the people responsible for education throughout our history have not been the older generation insisting on passing it along, but the younger generation, each new younger generation, eagerly (laughs) acquiring it. And how do they acquire it? They acquire it through their play, through their exploration, through their questions, what we call play and curiosity or exploration in children, what we call their sociability, these are all part of their educative instincts. These, is, these are how they are designed by, by natural selection to acquire the skills and knowledge, values that they need in order to do well eventually as adults in the culture in which they're developing. Mm-hmm. One thing I really liked about the book is that you said it in a historical context. I don't really distinguish between evolution and history. They're sort of the same thing. I say that as a historian. I know from classes that I've taught that uh, Homo sapiens in their present form have been around for about 180,000 years. But we've actually only been going to school, as we understand it, for 
depending on how you count, a thousand, a couple thousand, maybe. I would even argue that in terms well, of compulsory schooling, that's a 19th century invention. That, yeah, it's really even the, the early 20th century is when compulsory schooling became the norm um, in, uh, in Western cultures. In, in the United States, for example, it wasn't really in, until about the 1900s that, um, that you had to go to school in most states in the United mm-hmm. States. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the point is, is that for 98, 99% of our history, we lived in small hunter-gatherer bands that operated uh, or educated themselves or educated their youth in a very different way. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, first of all, it w- hunter-gatherer cultures don't have a word for education. They just assume it occurs naturally. It's just part of life. It's not something separate from life. Uh, but when you ask hunter-gatherers, when anthropologists have asked hunter-gatherers, well, how do, how do children learn what they need to know? How do they, uh, how do they learn how to hunt and gather? How do they learn to, to build huts? How do they learn to make dugout canoes? How do they, how do they learn all the, the intricate dances and the music of your culture and so on and so forth? And what, the, what the, they will say is, oh, they learn it on their own. They look around, they see what's happening around them, they're curious about it, and they play with it. They try it out. They do all these things in their play. And because hunter-gatherers recognize that this is how children learn, they allow their children and even their teenagers, this, this surprises most people, even their teenagers essentially infinite time to play and explore on their own. They don't expect any serious work from kids, you know. (laughs) Kids may do a little hunting and gathering, but in a very playful spirit. They're not expected to provide uh, major provisions for the band. They're really expected to do what they want to do, which is to play and explore. They do so in age-mixed groups where the little kids are learning from the bigger kids naturally in their play. The bigger kids are helping to care for the little kids, and not because it's necessarily their job to do so, but because they like the little kids. These are siblings and cousins for the most part. And, and so they're playing together and learning together, and they're playing at the very kinds of skills that, um, that they see the adults uh, engaged in around them, and they become good at those things. They play at tracking animals, and they play at shooting bows and arrows or blowpipes, depending on how the, their culture hunts. They play at, at mimicking animals and therefore learning the habits of the animals. They play at finding various kinds of uh, vegetation, and they learn to name the vegetation from uh, as, they, as they play these games. They play at diplomacy. They hear the adults uh, around the campfire discussing... Uh, Basically, what we would call politics. What are the, what are going to be the big? Uh, what, when's the next time the group should move on, and or, or what uh, should we do about this band nearby who is asking to, uh, asking us to share more of our food with them? Should we let them do that or not let them do that? What should we do about the, uh, this person? These this couple of people who have been arguing noisily at night and keeping us awake. So they hear all these kinds of discussions among the elders, and in their play, they mimic those things. They practice, they practice argument. 
they practice, in other words, all the various kinds of skills that are necessary to become a, uh, an adult in, in their society, not because they are consciously educating themselves. They're doing it just because it's fun. They're built to do this. Human beings are built to, as when they're young, pay attention to, to uh, what their elders are doing around them and to want to do those things, and then they do them in, in their play and become eventually good at them. So that's the way hunter-gatherers um, educate themselves. There's every reason to believe that that's the way they always educated themselves. Um, and so it's really the children's initiative, it's the children's activity that is key to education, not the teacher's activity. Uh, uh, Hunter-gatherers don't generally even have a word for teaching, but of course they teach in a certain sense. Um, you know, uh, if children are making uh, bows and arrows, um, an adult nearby may point out a, a, a better way to shape the arrow, um, but only if the child is interested. They aren't going to force the child to practice making arrowheads if um, the child doesn't want to do that. They, they have a very strong response and trust of individuals' instincts and judgments. They believe that each person knows best what is good for them or not good for them, and therefore their approach to child-rearing is really one of non-intervention, non-interference. It's one of helping in ways that the child wants to be helped but not one of trying to determine what the child should be doing for his or her own good. The belief is the children know what they what is best for them, and this may differ from child to child. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So maybe you could contrast that mode of development. Let's call it that. I almost wanted to say child rearing. Um, sure. I think that sort of that that is a that that. That is a. That's not the right way to put it. Contrast it with uh, the way that we do it, including in schools. Yes. Well. Well, we have more and more over time, and and it has really reached a, an almost ridiculous point in the last uh, two or three decades. Come to assume that children are developed best when adults are controlling their development. When adults decide what they should do. When adults oversee them basically all the time and, uh, and determine what activities they should engage in and instruct them in how to do these activities rightly or wrongly. This, of course, has always been the mode of education in our standard schools. This, is, this has been true since the beginning of schools as we know them today uh, really began in uh, Prussia in the, in the um, 18th century when they began to become fairly prominent there and at that time um, controlled by uh, pietist religious sects and some later on became taken over by the state. But the purpose of those early schools was really indoctrination and obedience training. It, there was no there was no fear that children couldn't learn on their own. What the fear was that was that children weren't going to be good, obedient subjects, good, obedient um, 
uh, you know, they they might go to hell from the religious point of view, mm-hmm. or from the secular point of view, they might become rebels and riot against the state. So the idea was to create a more passive kind of citizen. And the way you do that is by putting them in school where they are subjected to continuous demands and oversight. And and the early educational theorists were quite explicit about this. The, The purpose of school was not to promote curiosity. It was to suppress curiosity. It was to suppress the child's own will and make the child more obedient. Remember, and it wasn't that long ago that willfulness was a negative term. It was willful, willfulness was almost synonymous with sinfulness. And so the purpose of these early Protestant religious schools, and that's really where schools as we know them came about, was to suppress children's willfulness and make them obedient. So the methods of schooling developed for that purpose, initially to presumably to save children from going to hell, but then later on were taken over by the state primarily to make children good citizens, willing to serve in the army, you know, willing to contribute to the state, willing to work in factories doing menial labor that was boring and paid very little. And, um, and so... So the idea that education is aimed at promoting curiosity or critical thinking or uh, initiative by the child, it was really developed for quite the opposite reason. Today, many of us might wish, because we see that curiosity and creativity and initiative are really essential for survival in our, in our economy today. We don't need passive people who just follow orders, that kind of job has been taken over by machines. We need people who are a little bit more like hunter-gatherers. <laughs> we need people who are more autonomous, more able to go with the flow and figure things out as, it, as things happen and adapt to new conditions and learn new things on the job. Um, just as every hunting trip was an entirely different adventure and you had to figure out new things as you were doing it, today as, as adults go through life, you can't depend on having a steady union job in which you're going to do the same thing all your life. You're going to have to be able to learn as you go through life. You're going to have to have the confidence that you can do that and so on and so forth. Well, our school system that was designed to promote passive, obedient, will-broken people (laughs) doesn't work (laughs) to create the kind of person that that we need today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I mean, I, I quite agree with that. One of the things you point out in the book, I would put it a little stronger, a school, a modern school is an authoritarian environment. That's correct. It is absolutely an authoritarian environment. I mean, it's an environment in, in more so than any job that an adult would ever agree to work at. <laughs> it's an environment in which the child at every moment is supposed to be doing what the authority, the teacher tells him or her to do. It's a hierarchically structured environment. The teacher is given instructions by the principal who has instructions from the superintendent about exactly what children are supposed to be learning and how they're supposed to be learning it. The teacher has to then pass all this on and enforce it or with the principal's help enforce it so that the students 
not only are told what to learn, but they're told how to learn it. <laughs> you know, I remember when my son was in school, he got into trouble. By the time he was in fourth grade, he was regarded as unfit for school because he insisted on doing things his own way. He could get the right answers in <laughs> to the arithmetic problem, but he had his own way of doing it. And it just, it, you know, that was something that the teachers could not stand because he was not doing it the way they were telling him to do it. More important even than getting the right answer <laughs> was getting the right procedure. And lo and behold, in a course where there's more than, or in a situation where there's more than one right answer, if you choose the right answer that's different, or if you disagree with what the right answer is, and in most fields, maybe unlike arithmetic, there is more than one right answer. Nobody really knows. It depends on your point of view. Schools simply are not designed to, to deal with that. Your job is to do what you are told, to feed back the information you are given as if it's truth. And children, at worst, children buy into this and believe this all is true. That's, most children are too sophisticated for that. What they do is they become cynical. They, they realize this isn't really education, but this is just something I've got to do. What I've got to do in order to, in order to get out of here, to get my degree so I can go on with life, is I've got to follow all these things that I'm being told to do. I've got to feed back on tests and so on, the answers that I'm supposed to give. And it creates a kind of cynical and negative view about the whole business of learning. <laughs> and, uh, and it's no surprise, therefore, that um, people go on in life often never looking back at the kinds of things that they were forced to study in school. How many people, for example, have mathematics as a hobby if it's not part of their job, or even have history as an interest or a hobby as if it's not some aspect of their job? Surely some do. But the great majority don't, and I think it's not because there's nothing intrinsically interesting about these things. I think it's because they've developed such a cynical and negative attitude about it because of the forced learning of it in, in school that, um, that they have a distaste for. Mm -hmm. And you point out that it promotes hierarchy, that is, it demonstrates hierarchy. It absolutely, yeah. yeah it, it's uh, the school, you know, the, the, sc the schools are the you know, we we in America pride ourselves in liberty, democracy, <laughs> you know. The schools, by this view, are the most un-American institutions that we have. <laughs> mm -hmm. Children are raised in order, you know, presumably we're trying to produce good democratic citizens, people who know how to handle freedom, people who respect one another and believe in the principles of democracy and who vote and who know how to talk about ideas and believe in equality of their of their fellow human beings and yet we are in we raise them in an environment that's the exact opposite of that it's a hierarchical environment the children are not free as long as they're in school far far from it they're constantly competitive to see who's best. It's not an environment in which uh, rewards you and it even may punish you for helping others. That might be regarded as cheating, <laughs> you know, or helping others to cheat. Um, it's an environment that 
tends to foster sort of clickishness because of the competitive nature of the environment, the constant comparing of who's better than whom. You know, this is an anti-democratic kind of environment. It's, it's not the kind of environment in which children, through their own life experiences, are learning what we claim to be the values of our democratic society. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things you point out, and I'd like to hear you talk about this, because I think many people reading your book will have, if you'll pardon me, Lord of the Flies in the back of their mind. Yeah. Now, one should say about that, I mean, it's kind of a naive thought, because those people, those kids, were socialized in a heavily authoritarian school environment. So when they got on their own, they recapitulated it, right? But I guess what I'd like to hear you talk about is one of the things you say is that uh, these sort of, um, you know, the sociologist uh, Irving Goffman, I'm sure you yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. Well, he talked about total institutions and a total institution would be the military or an, a, an asylum or a school where, where people have to conform. They're very strong authoritarian mm-hmm. uh, sort of power and the people are required to assume certain roles. They're, they're very highly structured. And he talked about the way people react to these sort of very odd arrangements where everything right. is fixed. Um, and one of the things you point out is that Schools actually promote bullying. Right. Could you talk a little bit about that? Right. Well, let me, you've, you've said quite a bit yeah, there. Sorry. Let me start by uh, actually commenting on the Lord of the Flies, because this is brought up so often. Yeah, I imagine it is. You know, there, there, there are three reasons I can, that come to my mind immediately as to why the Lord of the Flies is, is not a good analogy or a good way to think about what happens when children are free. The first, of course, is that the Lord of the Flies is a work of fiction. <laughs> you know, this is not a, you know, this is like Ronald Reagan when he used to refer to movies to explain uh, yeah. his, the principles that underlie lay his political philosophy. You know, <laughs> this is referring to fiction to argue against a certain kind of school. And if you want to argue against a certain kind of school, let's refer to some factual historical occurrence rather than to something that's just made up. So secondly, though, it's even though I say it's a word of uh, a work of fiction, I don't think it's completely implausible. I mean, you drop a bunch of uh, boys, first of all, it's all boys, <laughs> you know, who were who who were socialized in a British in British boarding school, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, which is a extraordinarily hierarchical, authoritarian s- society where they're not learning how to get along democratically with one another. There was a lot of bullying and fighting. They've been socialized for that. Where in fact, bullying and fighting was part of the culture. You know, who could, who was the toughest, and and so on. So you drop them off in the forest someplace, and what are they going to do? And and thirdly, and and maybe this is the most important thing. Human beings really are um, the normal human environment for children to develop in is not one of chaos and anarchy. The normal human environment is a moral community where there are people of all ages, there are adults around as well as kids, <laughs> and where there is an established cultural um, um, a set of mores and values and procedures. So, um, so the kind of school that I advocate and which exists in the form of the Sudbury Valley School is not an anarchy. It's a school that has existed for many years. It has a school that has a developed culture. It's a school that's got formal procedures, just as our larger um, 
democratic government has formal procedures for making laws. The school has formal procedures for making rules. It's got procedures for enforcing the rules and so on. But they're democratic procedures. They're procedures in which the kids have a say in what's happening. And the kids themselves, if you violate a rule, you're tried by a... a, a, a a jury of your peers, you know, not by some uh, authoritarian figure who is making a judgment without having to go through due process of really proving your guilt or, or uh, explaining the rationale and um, and uh, uh, for whatever the punishment is. It's you know that's the difference between democracy and an authoritarian uh, top-down form of of, of governance. So. What I'm arguing is not to replace the hierarchical authoritarian system of schooling that we have with anarchy for kids, but rather to replace it with democratic system of uh, organization that is m- more comparable to our ideals about um, about our own uh, our own. Um, our own country's government or our own states or localities' government. So the children are growing up, learning and experiencing the basic principles of, of democracy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the issue of bullying, I'm sure many people want to hear about that. The issue of bullying is, um, is a very interesting issue. It's, it's interesting to note, let me tell you two settings in which um, we just really don't see bullying. One is in hunter-gatherer bands, and I've talked, I've never directly observed people in a hunter-gatherer band, but I have friends who have, and I've done a systematic survey of anthropologists who have lived in such bands, and I've asked them about what they observe in the culture, and I've read pretty much whatever has been written about children in, in such cultures. And the conclusion that I come to, and that anthropologists have come to for the specific bands that they've studied is that bullying doesn't seem to exist. You don't find bullying. You find some roughhousing. You find children running around and maybe engaging in playful fighting, but you don't find any real fighting. You don't find, and and you find lots of teasing, lots of teasing, but it's good-natured teasing. It's not... um, it's not mean and nasty teasing. It's not nobody gets singled out and isolated and becomes a pariah in the group, uh, as happens altogether too often in our in our schools, and sometimes leads to suicide or sometimes leads to somebody breaking down and engaging in mass destruction at the school and killing other people. You don't see anything like that in a hunter-gatherer band. Nor do you see it at the Sudbury Valley School, which I can talk about as we go along, where I've done a lot of my own research. This is the democratically organized school that um, where I've done, where I've observed how children learn through their play and exploration. And I think that there are two main reasons, maybe three, why you don't um, see bullying in these settings. One is that these are very clearly moral, democratic settings where the ethos that is experienced every day is one of respecting one another, respecting differences among people, tolerating differences. This is not preached in a lecture as it might be in school. This is something that's practiced, that's experienced. It comes out in the judicial committee discussions. It comes out in the school meeting discussions about rules and so on. And 
and it is simply part of the atmosphere of the school, and children absorb it. So that's what that's perhaps the key to it, and that's true in hunter-gatherer bands too. And then the second part of it, and I think this is something that most people in our culture don't think about, and that's the value of age mixing. You know, when you separate children by age, so that they're so that you've got eight-year-olds just with eight-year-olds and 12-year-olds just with 12-year-olds, you are creating the conditions for competition because everybody's supposed to be at the same level, that, which then leads to the question, well, who's best? <laughs> you know? and, so, and so that also leads to a kind of competitive atmosphere and a kind of picking on people who seem different and in ways that could be interpreted as worse to the people involved. Different, maybe because they dress differently or they look differently or the color of their skin is different or whatever it is, or they come from poverty versus somebody who doesn't. Whatever it is, in that kind of environment, differences stand out and they become stigmas and they become something that you criticize somebody about or that you even begin to bully somebody about. So the, mm-hmm. you know, there are different kinds, different forms of bullying, but one of them is the picking out of the person who's who, making them lowest on the totem pole within your, within your group. Mm-hmm. And there's also a tendency in these cultures, in this kind of setting, especially for boys, to fight with one another. Who's strongest? And so they fight, and the fights become not just play fights. They become more like real fights. They begin to be contests, and then they may become... Anger may develop, and there are real fights. So that's what happens with age mixing. But in hunter-gatherer bands and at Sudbury Valley School... I'm sorry, that's what happens when you segregate children yeah. by age. But when you, when you mix children of all different ages together, you see something entirely different. Now suddenly, everybody's different. I mean, you can't... If you're, if you're 15 years old and, uh, you know, almost 6 feet tall and weigh 150 or 60 pounds and, uh, and uh, are skilled in this and that, you can't... There's no pride in feeling that you're better than a, than an eight-year-old, you know. So suddenly the relationships, the way of thinking about relationships is different. It's not better or worse. It's, it's enjoying one another. You, you may be better at almost anything than this eight-year-old if you're the 16-year-old, but you, you enjoy that eight-year-old. You want to play with that eight-year-old. You want to draw out what's best. And you can find interesting ways to play with that kid that are challenging to both of you. But in the process, you're helping that kid learn something. Mm-hmm. I also think that it's part of our human nature, especially as we become teenagers, to want to begin practicing being parents. We want to learn how to be fathers and mothers. That's natural. In the course of our, of our human evolution, it wouldn't make sense that suddenly, plop, oh, I've got a baby. I don't know how to take care of the baby. It makes much more sense that you would have an instinct to want to take care of babies and young children and know how to nurture and care for them well before you ever had your own child. So... Children, and especially teenagers, are drawn to little kids. They like little kids. They want little kids sitting on their laps. They want to give them piggyback rides. They want to, they want to help them solve their problems. They find them cute and irresistible. 
And there's something then about little kids being in the environment that brings out the nurturing, compassionate aspect of human nature. And so when you raise children, as we do all together too often in our society, in such a way that they're not exposed to little kids, they don't have the opportunity to care for and help and interact with little kids, you are not nurturing the, the caring and nurturing aspect of people's personality. Rather, you are instead fostering the competitive aspect of people's personality. So, the, so I would suggest that a, a key to the lack of bullying in, in both hunter-gatherer cultures and in Sudbury Valley School is that children are every day interacting with little kids as well as big kids. There's the whole range of ages. The big kids are very protective of the smaller kids. If, if let's say, an 8-year-old does say something mean to a 5-year-old, you know, a 12-year-old will step in and say, hey, don't do that. Don't bug this little kid. He's a kid kid. <laughs> you know, he'll, he'll, he will, in a way that's far more ineffective than an adult could be, will chastise the one who's picking on the younger one before it ever gets to the level that you would call bullying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say that this is very consistent with my experience in free play of sports. I grew up playing a lot of pick up everything. Yeah. And it was, they were always mixed groups. There were people from 15 to six. And I started as a six year old and I have to admit there was some hazing that went on. There was never any bullying. Right. It was very clear to me that I was not as good as the 15 year olds. There was no question of that. Right. But they did teach me how to behave in that kind of competitive environment. Um, they did, uh, they did correct us, and they corrected each other. But as I say, there was no bullying at all, really. Right. And, you know, I, when I became the 15-year-old, I assumed that role. And so there among the 8- and 9- and 10-year-olds, I right. would step in and I would help them. Um, and didn't really do it consciously. There was a, it was just sort of the convention that you would do this. You didn't like to see people being picked on at all. And you were there to right. play a game. And we played pickup baseball and basketball and football and all these other things. Now, I also played... Uh, uh, what do you call it? Non-free play or yeah. structured play. I played football, basketball, and baseball. Right. And those were very different because we were age segregated and there was an adult there. And uh, there was a, uh, and you know, it was strictly competitive. You were just trying to get a starting pot in the spot on the team. Right. That was it. Right. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a, um, it was a winner take all game. There was no, right. there was no room for sympathy with anybody. Right. And so, and that, and as you pointed out, that kind of, that kind of game encourages cheating. Yeah, it encourages cheating, and it and and you're much more likely to get seriously injured in the more competitive in the formal game because the emphasis is on winning. You know, yeah. so if you're, uh, you know, you if 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 uh, slamming as hard as you can into a particular opponent, whether this is in football or uh, or hockey or <laughs> or baseball, as you're sliding into or, or running into second ba- into the second baseman, making it to second base doing it as hard as you can, that helps you win, you know, so you do it in the competitive game. In in the game where you're keeping score and you're trying to have fun, but in the end, who the hell cares who wins, you know? I mean, you don't even remember the next day which team won, and it doesn't matter which team won. The teams change every day. Within the game, you know, you might move yeah. from one team to the other to help make the sides more even. Yeah, you know, yeah, so absolutely. so winning is yeah. is ultimately meaningless. You yeah. you may 
cheer wildly every time your score your team scores a win. Oh, that's great fun, but a, a run. But but in the end, nobody remembers who won. Nobody cares who won. The the whole thing is to have fun. Yeah. And the and yes, I I you know I played both kinds of of sports too. And and a key difference is that if you when you are playing the informal way, you're right, there is often hazing, there's often teasing that can even verge on being mean teasing um, of, uh, of kids, uh, often of younger kids by older kids. But here's the key. You have to keep that within limits because if you go too far with it, those kids will leave. If it's no law, if it's more painful that, for them to be there than not be there, they will leave, and and your game may be destroyed because you don't have enough players anymore. Yeah, no, that's true. That's absolutely so, true. Especially a pickup basketball where you need ten people, and so, so we would take yeah. almost anybody to play. So that's right. So you so you'll tease them if you. If you really don't want somebody to play with you, then you might tease them until they leave, and then they're, they're going to have to, or, or pick on them until they leave, and then they're going to have to find some other group, a more compatible group, maybe a group that's more like them in size and ability and so on, to play the game. But in the age mix game, where there's a limited number of kids around, as there is in the hunter-gatherer band, as there is at the Sudbury Valley School at any given time, you know, if you want to play a, a soccer game, you need a, at least a certain number of kids on each side to make it fun and um, and if you are bullying kids to the point when they leave that they leave then there's no more soccer game so there's a kind of natural consequences that mm-hmm. uh, lead to learning how to see things from the other person's point of view so that they will have enough fun to stay in the game rather than to leave it right and it's also a cooperative activity on your team unlike academics where you are pitted you know, yeah. academics is like tennis. It's a, it's a singles tennis. It's just you right. and the other people. That's it. Right. And you don't really have any incentive to help them in any way. Right. In fact, you have an incentive to hurt them right. so that you can uh, rise in the ranks and please right. the adults, which is really what right. I think of school <laughs> is. School is the game of please the adults yeah. uh, because you're certainly not trying to please other students. Um, because it is this sort of uh, winner-take-all kind of game. Um, Another thing I want to say about bullying, because it's been so much in the news, and I think it is because the way our schools work, it's systematically generated by our schools, is that, and again, this is I find this just absolutely remarkable, how many people have uh, supposed uh, remedies to stop bullying when, in fact, once bullying has occurred in that environment, there is no remedy. Either an adult has to step in, and that doesn't work, Right. obviously doesn't work, right. um, or you have to let the bullying continue. Yeah. There's really nothing you can do. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the, the, the knee-jerk response when, when something dramatic, you know, it, the school systems become suddenly very cognizant and concerned about bullying when something terrible happens in their school, when somebody commits suicide and it was because they've been bullied or when somebody, you know, comes to school with a gun as right. revenge because they've been bullied. That that's when schools begin to take take bullying seriously. And in the state I live in, in Massachusetts, um, the state recently, maybe about a year or two ago, passed a an anti-bullying law, if you can believe that, <laughs> if this can be settled by state law. That that makes it mandatory for anybody who is 
who works in the school system. This is not just teachers, but, you know, lunch ladies, school bus drivers, janitors, anybody who, any adult who works in the school who sees what they think is bullying is required to report it. (laughs) And then the principal of the school is required to follow up on it. Well, can you imagine how totally unenforceable this is? How do you know when bullying is occurring or not? I mean, kids all the time are in, in fun, in play. The best, best of friends call one another idiots, you know, they, they call, and worse than that, you know, they, this, is part of, uh, this is part of kids' behavior. This occurs in hunter-gatherer bands, too. It occurs in Sudbury Valley also. You know, this is, uh, this is part of growing up. It's how kids, uh, in some sense, to call somebody a name is a way, if, if, it's, if it's done with a friend, is to say, hey, I recognize this about you, but I like you anyway. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's a way of acknowledging our weaknesses and our deficiencies yeah. and so on and so forth and, and still accepting one another. Yeah. So unless you really know the context, unless you really know who these people are and the history of what's happened between them, you don't know if it's bullying or not. Yeah, you know. So how do you, how on earth is this law going to going to going to solve this problem? What it does is it is it creates one more kind of top-down rule that the kids feel they're supposed to follow and that they then if they're going to do any bullying, they now have to hide it and, and rather than it being out, out in the open or any, I should say, any teasing, they, they have to hide it. So this is, you know, Sudbury Valley has a, has a, has a great rule for stopping bullying, which is it's one of the rules made by the school meeting, and I think this is just ingenious. If, if you do something to me or continue to say something to me and I don't like it, and I say in a perfectly serious tone of voice, not in a playful tone of voice, not in a teasing point of voice, in a perfectly serious tone of voice, I say, stop it. I don't like that. And if you continue to do it, you violated this particular rule, and I can bring you up to the judicial committee which is not a committee composed, which is not like taking you to the principal. This is not like tattling to the authority figure. This is taking you to the, to the judicial committee, which is a group of our peers. This is other kids. This is a representative sample of the school who, have, who we have played a role. You and I both have played a role in, in determining this system. It's not imposed on us. We're not prisoners here. We're members of a democratic society. So I bring you up to this group and I say, you know, before this formal procedure, I say, hey, you know, I was, you were doing, so-and-so was doing this and this to me and didn't stop. And um, the judicial committee would have some discussion about it. I would have to explain about how this made me feel. You would have to explain about how you were doing it really just in fun. And then they would say, well, but apparently wasn't fun for Peter. He, was, he says he felt hurt by it. So there'd be a discussion about it. And then depending on, we might just shake hands and agree it wouldn't happen anymore. Or if, it's, if it has happened in the past or continues to happen, there might be some further sanctions like the school might, the, the group might say, well, 
you have to stay away from Peter for the next two weeks. You can't be seen in the same room. If he walks into a room, you have to leave it. <laughs> you know, they may, that might be a rule that the, the children, in all their wisdom, and this really is wisdom, would uh, decide upon. So, um, so that's, that's how, in those cases where something that could become bullying occurs, and it's not settled by the more natural means of just, uh, that just happened naturally between kids. This is, uh, this is the way Sudbury Valley solves that problem. Mm-hmm. But you can't do that within a public school, mm-hmm. with a typical school, because of the hierarchical ranking. And so if you, if you, God forbid, were to, if I, God forbid, were to go to the teacher or the principal and report you for picking on me, then I'm going to be all the more picked on yes, because I'm now a rat sink. I'm yeah. a tattler. I'm a... I'm a sissy who can't solve his own problems, you know. So, so you can't you can't use that procedure in a hierarchical in in a government situation. But that's the that's the wonder of democracy, where in this situation, where the where the the rules are created by us, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're violating rules we made. That right. becomes a whole different situation, and we are going to people like us to help to help uh, adjudicate this, that's a very different situation right. from going to a teacher or a principal or a king. Yeah. At Sudbury, the, the kids have buy-in, basically, into the system, whereas in a public school, they absolutely don't. And, and you're told, I think you're totally right that there, is, that there is no fix for this in that. No. That, that there's no fix. We can talk about it until we're blue in the face. The minute an adult steps in... The, the situation is fouled. There is the the one anti-bullying program that I'm aware of that seems to have had some effect that has been documented and published is uh, a program um, called the Roots of Empathy program um, initiated by a woman. Um, I think her last name is Gordon in um, in Toronto, and it's now fairly common in schools in Canada. Basically, what this program involves is, uh, is uh, and it's usually done in middle schools, um, is to bring a baby, literally a baby and the mom, into the classroom for periodic visits. Mm-hmm. The, the, per, the program started because the idea was to teach kids what it is like to be a baby and to have a baby. It was kind of part of a program to uh, dissuade, you know, early pregnancies. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of responsibility to have a baby, but also to get an idea of what babies are like and so on and so forth. But lo and behold, what the teachers in these classrooms observed was, first of all, that the kids were really became compassionate and nice to, to the baby, not surprisingly, when the baby was there, oh, they all loved this baby, they wanted to hold the baby, they wanted to care for the baby, they talked in loving ways about the baby, this is all natural, but the surprise was that even, during, even when the baby was no longer there, these kids were more caring to one another, <laughs> you know, the nurturance that, that was brought up in them, that welled up with them by virtue of the baby, even though the baby was only there rarely and for maybe an hour at any given time, that sort of brought their nurturing instinct up and it spilled over so they were more nurturing and caring to one another. Now, I don't think this solves the problem, 
but it apparently played it apparently was helpful and so it it, um, it reinforces the point that I made a little bit earlier about the value of age mixing how little kids tend to bring the nurturing instinct up in uh, older kids and um, and in this case in such a way that um, they even care for one another uh, 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 who are similar in age um, more than they otherwise were mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have a couple more questions before we're done one is could you tell us a little bit more about the uh, Sudbury Valley School? And the particular question I have is, how do the students learn um, what we might call technical skills that are necess- you, uh, we think of as necessary? I don't know if they're necessary or not right. for, um, for uh, uh, um, tertiary education and then life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I guess the skills that most people think of as uh, skills that are pretty valuable for everybody are how to read, you know, and how to write (laughs) and uh, how to use numbers, at least to some degree. You know, we don't, um, most of what we teach in uh, sort of from middle school on in mathematics is never used by most people after they finish school. So that's probably all unnecessary and people who need it for their career can learn it on their job. But but it's pretty valuable to know how to read and how to write and uh, at, at least have enough knowledge of numbers so you can balance your checkbook and you can know that you're not being cheated at mm-hmm. the grocery store and so on and so forth. Uh, but people learn these things in life. People just pick them up. You know, when, when kids are growing up in a literate environment where everybody around them is reading and they're playing at computer games that involves words these days and they're... They're uh, playing games that involve typing more often now than writing. Um, they they just pick it up just in the course, just like they just like you learn oral language. I mean, really, if you think of it, the most difficult thing that any of us learn in our entire lives is our native language. From scratch, we learn our language, and we pretty much have learned it by the age of three or four. Mm-hmm. And nobody teaches it to us. We just are immersed in it, and we pick it up, and we figure it out. Well. This is how kids learn how to read when they're growing up in a literate environment. And, of course, it's learned how they learn how to use computers, which is the primary tool of today. You know, I see people in our culture who want to deprive kids of the opportunity to play with computers. They think computers are bad for them. I, I think that's like, you know, a hunter-gatherer adult depriving a kid of playing with bows and arrows. I mean, the computer is the primary tool of our culture, of, of course, kids are going to be attracted to it. Of course they're going to want to spend hours a day at it, you know, learning all its intricacies, using it, and, and so on and so forth. This is, this is what children are naturally designed to do. They're designed to kind of figure out what are the main tools in their culture and then to use them. So Sunbury Valley is a rich educational environment not in the sense of anybody making anybody learn things, but in the sense of there being lots of opportunity to learn. There's there's a fully equipped kitchen, so kids, you know, everybody likes to learn, at the school seems to like to cook, and they learn how to cook. And, oh gosh, when you're cooking and you're learning how to use a, a cookbook, uh, but you want to cut the recipe down in half or one-third, hey, suddenly you're working with fractions, you know, you're learning something about fractions in a way that makes fractions meaningful, I mean, useful. This is what fractions are for, is to be able to do things like this. Or or there's a woodworking shop, and some kids get involved in that, and if you're going to build anything, and if it's going to fit together, you've got to be able to measure, and you've got to be able to figure out... Uh, 
you know, that a board of three feet long plus a board of seven feet long is going to match up with a board that's 10 feet long. I mean, this, this all just comes through the process of doing, doing the things that interest you at the school, really doing things, not learning these things in the abstract in a way that's really meaningless to the kids, but in the way that they're meaningful. So the kids all learn to read. There's never been a kid at the school, and there's been hundreds, even thousands of kids gone through this school, and there's never been one that didn't learn how to read, even though nobody is forced to learn how to read. There's never been one who didn't learn how to write, at least to the degree that is necessary to function in our culture. Um, and, and, um, and beyond those basic things, you know, who's to say what kids need to learn? There's so many different ways of making a living in our culture. Some people at the school focus on music and they go out and actually make a living as musicians or as artists. Some kids at the school, there's the occasional kid, believe it or not, who just becomes passionate about mathematics. You know, mm-hmm. A lot of people can't believe this. Who on earth would really be interested in mathematics? We're all so phobic about math because we were forced, it was force-fed on us at school. It's hard to imagine that. But here we have kids playing with math, you know, and they become interested. And when you look at real mathematicians and ask them what they're doing, they'll usually tell you they're playing. Mathematics is a very playful field. Mm -hmm. Einstein considered himself to be just, you know, a grown-up kid. He was just playing mentally with all these mathematical and physical ideas and bringing to bear his imagination on it. So... Kids in play are developing skills and passions that they can then go on um, and and pursue in their careers, still in a playful uh, and joyous way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, I. I, um, This sounds like a remarkable place. It it truly, it truly does. I know that in my adult life, everything useful that I have learned, I learned uh, on my own with other people. I didn't take classes to do yeah. it. Uh, and I used it, I, I did it because I wanted to do it. I didn't do it because I was forced to do it. Um, right. I don't remember very much of anything from high school except how to read and write and add and subtract. <laughs> right, right. And, and you would have learned all of that without going to school, yeah, too. Because, I think you're, you know, you, I think you're you probably right about that. in an environment where this is all around you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. One of the things I realized, I mean, I was a co- I'm, I'm still a college teacher, I guess, uh, for many years is that, uh, you know, when I lectured, I stopped lecturing, actually, because I, one of the things I learned is that there are about, I'd say, Two or three percent of the students can sit for forty-five minutes and listen attentively. Uh-huh. About two or three percent. Yeah. And the rest of them are just lost. They don't want right. to be there. They're not interested in it at right. all. Right. Right. And I think that there are, you know, that the way our uh, educational educational system is set up, uh, it really um, it advantages people who have longish attention spans who can sit for a long period of time. If I could put it that way, it really does. There are these people. I think my wife is one of them. She right. could really sit for a long time and listen right. and, and, and learn. And I just never could. I couldn't sit there for that long. And I also know there's a gender difference. I wrote a little bit about this in a magazine once, and that is that right. girls can do it better than boys. Absolutely. And we see the results of this in college entrance and completion statistics now. Right. There are right. many more girls in college than there are right. boys because boys just can't sit there that long. Right. Um, and I was one of them. I just find it just fascinating. Um, so then I, I guess my, my final question is, what would you tell parents who are interested in moving the education of their children in this direction of free play? Well, I would, um, there's a lot of, 
um, things I would tell them. And, you know, the last chapter of my book is really devoted to this. It's uh, how to be a more trustful parent. And I like the word trustful parent because it's, you know, what I mean by a trustful parent is a parent who trusts your kids. You know, kids... Um, if you if you treat kids right from the beginning as if they're trustworthy and responsible, then they tend to be trustworthy and responsible. If you treat them right from the beginning as if they're irresponsible, they need to constantly be guided and so on, then, you know, this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. They kind of behave the way they're expected to do. In order to become responsible, kids have to be given responsibility. In order to become trustworthy, they have to be trusted. And so... So you have to um, you have to put away some of your fears. You have to put away some of your feeling that your child will make the wrong decision. Because and 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 comfort yourself by knowing that if the child makes the wrong decision and gets in trouble or fails or hurts himself, that'll be a learning experience. You know, it's very rare. We worry too much that the child is going to be killed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that happens. It does happen. Mm-hmm. It's always happened. It always will happen. It'll happen no matter how many protections we put out there. And when it happens in this day and age, we all hear about it, you know, no matter where it happens. So we believe it happens a lot more often than it does. In fact, it happens far less often than it has in the past because, first of all, there are actually fewer child predators out there than there used to be, (laughs) believe it or not. Mm -hmm. There's actually fewer, you know, and when it does happen, when that kind of thing happens, it's usually not a stranger out on the street. It's usually an uncle or a priest, you know, right? (laughs) It's it's usually the the person that you you would least suspect. So if we need to be more cautious, we need maybe to be more cautious about the people we formerly trusted and, and less uh, and less concerned about this the stranger is going to murder or uh, or or assault or uh, uh, um, molest our child if uh, the child god forbid is out playing without an adult uh, supervising and, and guarding the child or walks to school alone instead of being driven to school and, and so on so we are we are protecting our children from having the kinds of experiences and adventures that are really required for them to develop the courage and competence to solve their own problems and, and deal effectively with life. So that's part of what I would, I would say to a parent. And, and another part is Stop worrying about whether your child is going to get into a good college. (laughs) There's actually data showing that if you match other characteristics about kids, the kid who goes to Harvard does not in life do any better than the kid who goes to Framingham State College, the lowest ranking college, if I could say so, in my state. I, I, I don't let anybody from Framingham State hear that. A wonderful institution, <laughs> I'm just Framingham making State, that no up. doubt but the about truth it. Yeah. Of the, in fact, I love it, Framingham. The truth of the matter is that the reason Harvard kids end up with higher salaries is because their parents had higher salaries to begin with. <laughs> Because they come from a privileged background, and for all of those kinds of reasons, they're going to go on and live privileged lives. Mm. If you take the same kids 
and you match them, and this has been done statistically, and, who, and, and look at who goes to the more prestigious college and who goes to the less prestigious college, it makes not a whit of difference if you match for other variables in terms of subsequent aspects of um, their life, how much money they earn, and so on and so forth in life. So there's no good reason to be concerned whether your child is going to make it into Harvard or not. So stop worrying about your child's grades. Stop worrying about whether your child gets the highest test scores. Stop worrying about whether your child plays all the correct extracurricular activities or engages in the correct adult-directed volunteer activities that are going to lead to a juicy-looking resume. (laughs) Stop thinking of childhood as a period of resume building and start thinking of it as a period for your child to play and explore and in that way develop his character and, and, and find his own passions because that's what's going to really lead to success in life. That's a hard thing to do because many of these people, I mean, you know, speaking from experience now, mm-hmm. is that, you know, we're all sort of poisoned by this competitive system. It's, it's, you say it doesn't matter, and I'm sure it doesn't in terms of objective metrics. I don't doubt that at right. all. But what it does matter is it matters to the parents and it matters to the student because they're thinking about a hierarchy and where they fit into it. Exactly. Well, and, parents are in competition with other parents yeah. to, to prove that their child is better than the other yeah. parent's child, and therefore I'm a better parent than you are. We've got to get over that. And, and, and I, you know, I suggest some mental exercises in my book to help overcome that, to help parents come in touch with what their real values are. Let's settle down and think about what is it that's really important in your life? Yeah. What has made your life worthwhile? You know, was it when you beat somebody else or was it when you made a friend? Yeah. <laughs> was it when you, you know, was it when you got the highest score or was it when you helped somebody else get out of trouble? Well, I mean, that's a very yeah. good point. And this is something I've yeah. thought about a lot. And the fact of the matter is our educational system, and this is uh, K through college, is, um, if you'll allow me this, spiritually bankrupt Mm-hmm. completely spiritually bankrupt right. uh, because we teach people to be doers and not beers. We teach right. them, we tell them that their value is their test scores or their achievement on the athletic field or something else. Right. And and that uh, might work for someone up through their early 20s, but in midlife and later life, it does not work. It does not, uh, it does not work because the fact of the matter is uh, you are not going to be king of the world. Right. Somebody will always beat you. This is a game you have to lose. You can never win this game. Never. And in the end, you die. So so you're not going to beat that either. We all end up the same place. (laughs) You will never (laughs) win this game. The whole whole issue is did we enjoy the route, (laughs) you know, and and were we good people along the route and helped other people enjoy their lives. And that goes to the spiritual bankruptcy of the entire system (laughs) because it's just – I, I don't know what to say about that. But anyway, um, Peter, let me ask you our traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? What is your next project? Well, I'm working on uh, a couple of projects, but um, maybe the one that uh, I'll say something about is I'm actually now looking at the role of play um, in, um, in a larger sense, the role of play in social uh, Values in social organization and the role of adult play as well as as children's play. 
I'm, um, I just have uh, completed writing a chapter um, entitled, if I remember the title right, um, the, the Play Theory of Egalitarianism, it, which is, it starts off with my um, research into hunter-gatherers and the egalitarian society that they live in, and I make the case that the, how the, that they maintain their egalitarian way of living by almost deliberately promoting a playful spirit and engaging in lots of truly cooperative play as adults as well as children, dancing kinds of play, and a lot of play that involves cooperation, but also by bringing a playful attitude to what we would call work. They don't have a word for work that means labor or toil the way we do. They have a word for work that means producing something valuable, but it doesn't have the connotation of being something that you don't like to do, that you're doing just because of the end product. And my argument is that by virtue of bringing this playful attitude and promoting and and uh, building upon the human capacity and desire to play and and emphasizing that aspect of human nature, they are able to live in a peaceful, uh, cooperative, and sharing mode. And so now I'm interested in looking how at the places and ways in which play within a more modern culture can also promote more cooperative and peaceful and sharing modes of life. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds very interesting, and I hope we can have you back on the show uh, when you complete it. Thank you. Okay, today we've been talking with Peter Gray, who is the author of Free to Learn, Why Unleashing the Instinct to Play Will Make Our Children Happier, More Self-Reliant, and Better Students for Life. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of the New Books Network. I want to thank everybody for listening, and I want to thank Peter Gray for being on the show. Thanks, Peter. Oh, you're very welcome. I've enjoyed it. All right, take care. Take care.